Hello, 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 and welcome to Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb. I'm your host for today, for the next hour. Um, it was a crazy week in politics, and I know that I say that every week, but truly and honestly, it it, it was a wild week, and we have a lot to talk about. Um, I am all caffeined up. I am <laughs> going through my notes yesterday, putting together the prep for this episode. I was like, am I going to get everything that I need to talk about done in this one episode? We're going to see how it goes, because we have an insane amount to talk about in politics in the last week. Um, we're going to, you know, as opposed to, you know, what we usually do, which is kind of like breaking the show up into like, you know, three or four different chunks and then kind of like going through a bunch of different stories. We're basically just going to talk about one thing. We're just going to go through the last week and attempt to answer the question, what the heck just happened? Um, because I, I don't know if you guys were, were watching the news, but if you were watching the news, you may also be asking yourself, what the heck just happened? Uh, it certainly seemed like a lot came right out of nowhere. But so again, we're going to see if we can fit everything that I need to talk about in this episode. We're talking election day. We're talking infrastructure. We're talking build back better. Behind the scenes meetings on the hill. Um, just general chaos after election day. Anyway, a lot to talk about. But if we get it all done in this episode, it will be great and a miracle, but we shall certainly see. So, first of all, let's talk Election Day. First thing we're going to do is kind of go through the different results, go through different states, talk about why it happened, what happened, and then talk implications. See, actually, if uh, what is going on on Election Day, the Election Day this, this, uh, this past Tuesday actually means anything, or whether it is just kind of election cycles taking their natural trends. So, of course, first of all, the big overarching story to everything is Virginia. Democrats lost pretty big, pretty huge, actually. The Democrats did not do well at all. Um, ultimately, the margin ended up being 50.6% 50, 50 to 48.6% with um, Glenn Youngkin winning with that 50.6% um, and our boy Terry McAuliffe losing with 48.6%. So, I mean, when the polls started closing, I started watching um, CNN around like, it's like eight o'clock, started watching and the, mar the, the results were coming out and the margins looked so bad. It was like, at one point it was like 55-45 or something like that, or like 55-43. Like it, there was some, some insane margins. I literally don't think that Terry McAuliffe was up for any of the night, which like doesn't happen because usually like when certain um, like precincts get released or they start counting the mail-in ballots, like the Democrat kind of jumps up a little bit. Did not happen all of Tuesday night. Everyone's like, oh, it's going to be like a really light night. We're going to be waiting forever for the all the results to get released. Like it's just settle in everybody like you know the who was it it was a senator i believe on msnbc it was like get some pizza grab a beer like settle in for a late night and then all the networks were calling the race like an hour later like it was just not close at all um interestingly i kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago when i was talking about virginia i was like oh is there going to be like a like a split ballot kind of thing different margins for um the lieutenant governor and attorney general race, basic, I mean, basically the same, but but a little bit different. Lieutenant governor was 50.8% to 49.2%, and then the attorney general's race was 50.4% to 49.6%, which means that there were a couple people who, like, voted for the Democrat in uh, the attorney general race and the lieutenant governor race who did not vote for the Democrat in the gubernatorial race confusing to me, but I guess to each their own. That is the beauty of American democracy, is you can vote for whomever you would like. Um, so this was a surprise, I think, for a lot of people. Again, most people kind of thought like, oh, if we win, we're going to eke it out. Like, it's going to be a late night, but we're, we're probably we're probably going to gonna win in the end. Um, and like the, the poll numbers throughout the past several months kind of got worse and worse and worse for McAuliffe as time went on. So like in the weeks before the election, it was really not looking very good at all for McAuliffe, but it was like, uh, you know, it's like close to election, close to the election. Like, is it just like observation bias or like, is there some bias in the polling just because of what's going on in the world that this, this election is going to be weird. 
but most people were like, ah, it's going to be fine. Just like some weird trends. But like Virginia has been going blue for the past 10 years. So like it's, you know, it'll be fine. It's going to be fine. It, it, it was not fine. It did not go well. Um, and McAuliffe did very poor, very poorly in rural areas, generally just could not keep the 2020 presidential election coalition together. Um, and the interesting thing is, like, if you go county by county in Virginia, and this is a similar thing in New Jersey that we're going to talk about, um, is that the uh, Youngkin was consistently outperforming Trump, and thus Tara McAuliffe was consistently underperforming Biden. And that's, like, especially important in these rural areas um, where um, Youngkin was, like, really, really outperforming Trump. Like, like by several points, he was outperforming Trump, which is... Not good because, like, when you break it down, like, there's pollsters on on Twitter who kind of break it down. Um, you need, like, you know, you need 20% in this county, and then you need 75% in this county in order to win. And um, if we're just going with McAuliffe, like, McAuliffe was getting, like, 10% in the counties where he needed to win 20. It's like, okay, well, if he, you know, if he's getting, um, like, 20 if he's getting only 10 points where he needs 20, that means he's going to have to get 85% in the county where he needs 75%. And he was getting like 60% in the county where he then needed to be kind of, you know, he needed to increase his margin even more. And that did not happen. So it really just did not pan out across the board for McAuliffe, which is upsetting for him, I think. I think as he was watching things come out and he was looking at, okay, well... We had uh, this this area really didn't do well, but maybe we'll do really, really well in Arlington. And then suddenly he wasn't doing really, really. Obviously, he did really well in Arlington because it's very blue, but he didn't do as well as he needed to do. Um, and again, Yunkin was consistently outperforming Trump. And uh, of course, like Trump was like a major issue in this campaign. He was very central to kind of the, the back and forth debate, which we're going to talk about. But if if Yunkin was outperforming Trump, then the the idea of this being like a Trump versus Biden election, maybe if if Trump and Biden were the um, candidates on the ballot, Trump would have won Virginia. Um, and then if that was kind of played across the board across the country, would Trump have won if the entire election was played out again in 2021? That's an important question to consider, at least theoretically. Uh, we kind of are going to get into whether any of this actually matters <laughs> towards the end of the towards the end of the show. But regardless, some are arguing that the 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 fact that Yunkin won so big is a a, a good sign for potentially Trump's chances in 2024 if he does run again. Knock on wood that he does not, because I don't think that I can. I don't know if I'll make it through that race. To be perfectly honest, um, so not only did Terry McAuliffe do very very bad. bad his coattails dragged everyone down with him, um, and Democrats gave up their majority in the House of Delegates by, like, a lot. Like, they lost, like, four or five seats, which is extremely depressing that in one fell swoop, they lost two-thirds of the trifecta in, in Virginia. Republicans now have 50 seats, and the Democrats have 47. Through, as of last night, there were still three races that were undecided, so it could possibly end up being tied, but there's no tie-breaking me mechanism in the Virginia House of Delegates. So I don't know how that will work, to be perfectly honest. Um, but regardless, the, the best the Democrats could possibly do is tying the House of De the House of Delegates. And as it looks right now, of course, they're doing recounts and they're still doing mail-in ballots and blah, 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 blah. Um, two Republicans and one Democrat have the lead in those undecided races. So it's really not looking, looking good for the Democrats. Um, also... As a side note, if you're ever if you if you're crazy like me and you spent a couple hours like comparing the margins um, in Virginia counties in 2021 and 2020, um, you'll know that Virginia counties are really weird. And I don't know why I didn't know this or why I hadn't looked at it before. But as just a side note, if you're looking at something interesting, if you want to like you know do some do some investigations into Virginia geography. There's like a lot of like little counties within big counties and like the little counties are like blue or like slightly less red. And then there's like a big rural area around it. Very strange. But, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, which we're going to talk about next, which has like nicely defined, um, nicely defined counties and everything's kind of all nice and orderly. But Virginia is kind of kind of a mess. Anyway, I think that this is a sign that we should stop paying attention to Virginia. We will not stop paying attention to Virginia, but I would like to. So. 
Moving on from Virginia and the Democrats doing poorly. New Jersey was the other big gubernatorial race, and it was the other kind of big um, highlight of um, of Election Day, the other big kind of like top line story. Phil Murphy won his second term. Uh, he's the first Democratic incumbent to win re-election since the 70s, which is pretty good because we're going to, again, we're going to talk about like election trends. Um, and so this is um, Phil Murphy breaking an election trend, which is pretty exciting. Um, as just like a personal note, uh, Phil Murphy's gubernatorial race in 2017 was the first local race that I remember following closely. So this was um, a very, a very satisfying election for me to, for me to watch because it was kind of like the election that like, you know, started my, my interest in like local non-presidential politics. Um, it's like the first town hall that I went to with my mom. Um, you know, the first time I remember like interacting with like the, my, my town party um, chair people and all that kind of stuff at like, the farmer's markets and stuff. I remember talking to like the candidates representative. So a, a, a side personal note, but I have a, I have a strong affinity for Phil Murphy just because of, of my like personal experience of that race. So he won. That's great. He did not, however, win with the pizzazz and with the margin that was hoped for. Again, like like I talked about in the past couple of weeks, nobody was expecting New Jersey to be close. Like the polling didn't indicate it was going to be close. There was, of course, like the idea that, oh, well, election trends kind of indicate that um, Democratic incumbents do poorly in New Jersey gubernatorial races. Of course, like New Jersey governor goes back and forth. We had Chris Christie for eight years. Um but most people were like, yeah, Phil Murphy's pretty in it. Like, Jack Chitterelli, nobody knows his name. He has zero name recognition. Like, it's just not going to be too much of a concern. But he barely, barely eked out the win. Um, and it didn't get called until, I think, like, the next day, maybe two days later. Um, I think it was the next day. I feel like I remember it, it being called on Wednesday. But regardless, it took 12 hours after the polls closed, maybe more, um, for the race to be called. And the margin ended up being 50.9% to 48.3%, which is like a fairly decent margin. Um, but when the polls were closing and when like the vote tallies were being counted and everything else, it really looked like he was going to win by like a hundred votes, which was deeply upsetting <laughs> to me and my homies. Um, so it was a close race, but it was not that close. Um, so that was, it's, you know, the same as Virginia, like they were, it was, it ended up being a close election, but it looked like it was going to be a lot worse for the Democrats than it was ultimately. Um, at least Phil Murphy has like a little bit of a mandate in the same way that Glenn Youngkin has a pretty good, good mandate in Virginia as well. Um, so, and then like in, like in Virginia, um, if you if you, if you're comparing those vote margins from, um, 2020 to 2021, Chidarelli was outperforming Trump and Murphy was underperforming Biden. So anecdotally, like I said, I, I grew up in Morris County, which is up in, it's like, eh, it's like two or three counties from the top of, of, of New Jersey. And so um, when I was growing up, it was like pretty consistently red, like it always voted red, red presidential elections, votes red in all like the local races, like it's just, it's a pretty like moderately red um, county. And then in 2020, I was surprised to see that it had voted blue by like a small margin, but still pretty considerable. It was for 51 to 47 ish. Um, and I, I honestly thought that that trend was going to continue because like my, my hometown had been getting a lot more blue. I was like, all right, we are we're Bloris County. We're ready. We are raring to go. Uh, Morris County is going to be blue for the rest of time. Uh, and it did not work that way in 2021. Um, Chitterelli outperformed um, Trump by like seven, eight points. Um, he voted, they voted 55.9% to 43.5% uh, for Chitterelli, which is a pretty big margin. So like pretty solidly red. Um, so that kind of, again, is that just regular election trends? Is Biden the outlier here? Is Morris County getting a little bit more blue, but this was just one setback? We don't really know kind of the, the trends aren't long enough standing for us to know. The other interesting county uh, is Sussex County, which is, again, this is all northern New Jersey because this is the, the local New Jersey politics I know. Um, Sussex County is very, very red. Um, voted 58.3% for Trump in 2020, which Sussex County um, Democrats were so excited about. They're like, guys, we are we are turning Sussex County blue. This is it. Like, there is no, like, we are going to win Sussex County. Like, this is the best day ever. 
again, it probably is not going to work out that way. I'm so sorry to my Sussex County Democrat friends. Um, but in 2021, they voted 66.9% for Chitterelli, which is, again, a big margin. Like, he, Chitterelli really, really outperformed Trump. Outperformed Trump. So again, like the two um, comparisons we have here is, are these Republican candidates a stand-in for Trump? Or are they their own candidate? Like, do is are they are they a non-Trump alternative for the Republican Party? Um, and it's important to consider that they were both endorsed by Trump. Uh, I'm pretty sure Trump campaigned for both of them, um, but I'm not sure if it was like they 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 came to New Jersey and campaigned for them. Um, but the, the, that's the important question that like pollsters and political scientists and just kind of pundits need to figure out is. What role did Trump play in this election, in these elections, and and what, what what is the comparison between these Republican candidates and Donald Trump? Um, so, yeah, I'm a Northern New Jersey girl. I can't really speak to um, the po- political conditions in South or quote unquote Central Jersey, which you can't see me because this is a radio show, but I am doing air quotes around Central Jersey. <laughs> Fight with me if you would like, but I'm correct. Um, but the the map in 2020 was a heck of a lot bluer um, than it was in 2021. Biden won 57.1 to 41.3% in um, 2020. So it's just those margins are very different. And honestly, I think a lot a lot more different than in, than in Virginia. Um, and in my opinion, Maybe this is my bias as a Jersey girl, whatever. I'm allowed. I'm allowed to have this bias. I think that this race was slightly more interesting than Virginia because nobody thought that it was going to be close. Like nobody, you know, whenever we have these races and everyone's kind of focusing on one race instead of another, um, there's always like one person on Twitter who's like, well, I know you guys are all talking about Virginia, but you guys are, you guys really aren't seeing like XYZ come out of um, New Jersey, we really should be focusing more on New Jersey. I didn't see any of that. And maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. Um, because I wasn't paying enough attention, potentially. Um, but I didn't see any of it. And I didn't see anybody like whispering about New Jersey and worrying about New Jersey. Um, even like I have I have friends and acquaintances who worked on the campaign Murphy's campaign over the summer. And I didn't really hear any whispers kind of out of them. There wasn't any like huge fundraising or field push. Um, towards the end there, which I feel like I'm I'm kind of connected to if there was a big field push, I would have seen or heard from it um, just because of, you know, my my own connections in New Jersey politics. So I think that the, the fact that this race kind of came out of nowhere is very interesting. Is the DNC paying enough attention to those those races or are the, you know, are, are we paying enough attention to the race races that need to be paid attention to? Are we too stuck with focusing on one race at a time when we could be kind of allotting our resources across the board? Because we spent so much money and so much time and so much energy in Virginia. Was it a foregone conclusion that we were going to lose Virginia? Or should we have been splitting those resources between New Jersey and Virginia so we could have shored up a Murphy win even more? I know I think that's an interesting question. And then, of course, that goes to kind of the overarching main question of all of our lives all the time is polling, right? If the polling is telling us, oh, um, McAuliffe is definitely going to win, Murphy's definitely going to win, it's all good, and then they both don't win by huge margins or lose, is polling polling effective anymore? And I'm not a polling expert. I don't know. I don't like statistics. but, you know, pollsters and polling adjacent people will tell you, you know, it's polling error and when you count for all the variables and, you know, polling is about probability. It's not about exact vote margin and yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, then, 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 you know, if you go through all those variables and the polling was actually totally correct and you just don't know how to read polls, which may be true. But I think that when the when the top line headline is so drastically different from um what we actually know to be the truth post-election day. There's definitely something to be said for um, how we choose to understand polling and how we choose to understand the relative importance of polling. And polling is really important for campaigns um, because they um, because they, they, they drive how campaigns raise money, how campaigns spend money. Um, 
they drive how the DNC is choosing to support different races, how the RNC is choosing to support different races. Um, you know, it, it influences how donors donate, right? They're going to look and see, donors look and see which is like the closest, most marginal races where your money is going to have the largest impact. Um, and if that polling is incorrect, how are we going to know where to allocate those resources? And again, I'm not a polling expert. Maybe one day I'll have um, someone who's actually knows what they're doing with polling come on and talk about um, how to make polling more effective. But regardless, it's definitely raises an important question about, um, you know, what the future of campaigning looks like, especially like that kind of like party wide top down campaigning, if polling is no longer the the driving force behind how we allocate resources. So those are the two big top line elections, those two gubernatorial races. But we've got some other interesting things to talk about briefly. First of all, Florida 20. You know, I told you uh, two, last week, two weeks ago, oh, there's going to be no interesting House elections. All the House elections are boring. They're just shored up Democratic or Republican districts. Like, nothing's going to happen. I was wrong. The Florida 20th district, which was the race to um, replace Elsie Hastings, who... Um, died earlier this year is actually really close. It hasn't been called yet. And this, the, the Democratic primary hasn't been called yet. And they did a recount recently. And one of the candidates was five votes ahead. But then I was just checking before I came on air to see what happened. Now it looks like the other candidate is 10 votes ahead. Um, so they're just continuing to recount, I think. I think they're going to recount again. And I really don't think they're going to call this race for a while, which is so crazy and interesting to me. Um, and you know what? There's nothing. There's nothing like some th like th some thematic threads that go through this entire entire show. Polling again. There was not a lot of polling that was done out of um, this race, so I think everyone was really surprised that this was so close. Um, but at least we got an interesting. I mean, not not that they really should have been spending money polling um, this Democratic primary seat. That's like it doesn't even matter because it doesn't matter who who the democratic um pick is like that 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 candidate is going to win anyway but regardless why wasn't there any polling there was only like 15 races going on this entire cycle um so anyway at least we got one interesting house race out of all of this we got something to talk about there also as a side note so the the interesting thing other interesting thing about this race was that the the primary was last Tuesday the, like the November election was the primary and the general election isn't isn't going to be until January um and like that's that's weird because mostly general elections are um in November and primaries are over the summer but I learned that um Florida is holding the general election in January because the governor of Florida, who's a Republican, wanted to keep that Democratic seat out of Congress um, to kind of hurt the Democrats' chances of um, passing some legislation because they didn't have that that other um, they didn't have that other candidate in in the in the seat officially, which is very interesting and very sneaky and not something I appreciate, <laughs> um, just because. You know, with all of these votes about infrastructure and build back better, which we're going to talk about, um, you know, they, they still had that one more Democratic vote that they could not include in their whip counts. Very interesting and very sneaky. Um, also, with Florida 20, not that it matters, but the Republican primary, Jason Mariner, won the nomination. So the guy that won the nomination and ran against Elsie Hastings in 2020 actually lost. So they're, they're, they're presenting a new Republican alternative for this election. Not that it matters again, because it's like the PVI is like D plus 37 or something like that for this race. So unfortunately for, for Jason Mariner, he might be uh, not, not doing super, he might not do super well in January. But I should say that nothing is impossible and the Democrats can't take anything for granted. Um, uh, two more races that were interesting. One, two mayoral races, uh, local races that are important to talk about. One, Michelle Wu in Boston. She won um, the, the, the mayoral race in Boston. She's a progressive candidate. She was, I think she was the president of the city council 
or something like that, or the equivalent. Um, she went by a lot, like a lot, a lot. And she had a lot of support from um, progressive Massachusetts activists. So if you are familiar with the Markeyverse <laughs> um, out of Massachusetts, basically all the people that supported um, Markey against Joe Kennedy in 2020 Democratic Senate primary, they all kind of went to to support Michelle Wu right after that. So it was like she had a really, really strong grassroots um, digital presence, which I think was pretty influential. Um, and just like generally, she was a very progressive incumbent or not incumbent. She's a very progressive candidate. Um, and I think that that helped her a lot in that situation. She had endorsements from uh, Warren Markey, Ayanna Presley. So she was just, she was just kind of sweeping up the um um, endorsements, so it was kind of not a huge surprise that she was going to win, but people are really excited about it, and uh, I saw a tweet that was like, Boston's going to have the best, <laughs> the best mayor in the country, and I will not deny it. We'll, we'll see how the D.C. mayoral race goes next cycle. I'm sure we'll talk about that plenty, uh, but, you know, in, in ye old Washington, D.C., we certainly do not have the best mayor <laughs> in the country. Um, the other interesting race was the Buffalo mayoral race, which like, first of all, oh my God, why are we nationalizing the Buffalo mayoral race? No offense to Buffalo, but why are we, why am, why am I talking about Buffalo? Um, but the longtime incumbent Byron Brown got beat out in the primary by a socialist endorsements by the squad, all those things. Um, and so the incumbent got so angry that first of all, I think he like sued her to try to get on the ballot. I don't really know what exactly happened there because I wasn't paying super attention to it. But then the incumbent ran a really aggressive write-in campaign. And now it looks like the write-in is going to win like by a lot, like 70-30 or something like that. I haven't looked at the most recent um, data, but like he was, he and his campaign staff were like passing out like, like little stamp things so that you could just go into the booth and just stamp uh, the name instead of like writing it out. It was an aggressive writing campaign for a city mayoral race, which was pretty, pretty interesting and pretty upsetting. So progressives on Tuesday generally did very well. And a lot of, you know, female, females, women, especially progressive women of color, um, generally did a lot better than the moderate white men (laughs) that were running. Um, but this was, a bad loss for progressives and for like people who um, kind of are looking for those like squad endorsements because it, you know, the, the, her name is escaping me and I should have written it down, but she was pretty much the only, the, the, the progressive was like the only person on the ballot and she lost to a write-in, which is a, not something that happens very frequently, especially in like those local races. Um, just because it required a lot of time and energy for voters to go in and actively choose to write down another candidate as opposed to just like filling in a box or pressing a button. Um, and that, you know, not to not to say that like voters are apathetic, but voters tend to generally go, especially in like those local races, voters go in, they press their button and they go down the line and that's it. Um, but this is significant that people spent a lot of time and energy um, ensuring that this particular candidate did not win, which is, again, not a great sign for progressives, but it is also the Buffalo mayoral race. I'm not going to consider it to be a bellwether (laughs) of anything to come because it's the Buffalo mayoral race. Sorry to Buffalo. I'm sorry that I am uh, uh, minimizing your impact on national politics, but consider yourself minimized. Anyway, I also know That was kind of all the elections I want to talk about. I know that there was a lot of other referendums and local races that happened that are definitely very important. I simply do not have time to talk about them all. I might talk about some of the um, Texas um, referendums next week if I if I have time slash if I remember. Um, But those are all everything. There's a lot that happened that was important. But those are kind of like the big top line things I want to talk about. So now that we know what the heck happened, let's talk about why the heck it happened. So first of all, one of the main factors was like the nationalization of the race, right? Terry McAuliffe ran a very nationalized race where Trump was the centerfold of the campaign. Um, And other candidates like Phil Murphy ran more localized races. Um, 
And it kind of begs the question, like I talked about, was the crazy margin from 2020 because of anti-Trump or because Biden was actively advocating a new policy? So was, you know, Build Back Better an anti-Trump slogan or was it uh, the presentation of a, like, you know, (laughs) wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a new deal for America? (laughs) Um, So... He had to actually had to work pretty hard to present himself. Biden had to work pretty hard to present himself as an alternative as opposed to just not Trump. And if he was successful in that, I don't know, but I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Um, Youngkin also ran a very localized race and he focused on like very hyper local issues like education, which turned into like the largest issue of the campaign. Um, and he specifically distanced himself from Trump. And I thought it was because like Trump wouldn't look good on him, but I think it was because he saw the writing on the wall regarding nationalized elections and he knew, I need to get myself away from Trump, I need to get myself away from 2020, I need to just focus on kind of the issues that are right in front of me. Um, and he did a pretty good job of that. And considering like the fact that he is a he's a political outsider, he's never run a campaign before, he did a very good job, I think, focusing on those localized issues, which is good because nationalization doesn't help. It's not a good thing. It doesn't, it, it does not help um, incumbent parties. And so the national press also was not good for Democrats. So of course, like the chaos on the Hill um, with Build Back Better and with the infrastructure bill and with the budget, people just were not looking at Democrats in a favorable light there. Plus um, like the quote unquote labor shortage and gas prices and all that kind of stuff. There was not enough time for Democrats to combat that negative narrative in order for McAuliffe to do better. Um, is is there evidence to suggest that the Democrats being chaotic actually hurt them on Election Day? It's kind of a TBD thing because it's hard to get a feel for what the narrative is like outside of D.C. Obviously, like where we're sitting in the basement where I'm sitting, at least in the basement of the University Student Center, like miles away from the hill. We get a very different narrative from what people in rural Virginia are thinking about um, about those those national issues. Like we truly just don't know. Um, But of course, the other big thing that like probably did influence the election was Biden's approval rating. It was like in the low 40s a couple weeks ago. It's in the high 30s now. I think I read, I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure I read today that um, Kamala Harris's approval rating is like 28%, which is (laughs) pretty dismal, I think, uh, under any conditions um like i don't even know if trump's approval rating got down that low which is like really saying something because i don't know biden's not doing great but he's not doing worse than trump um so anyway i think that those nationalized issues we don't know how much build back better and infrastructure actually influence like rural republican voters But I'm sure that, you know, a lot of evidence is going to come out that Biden's approval rating and issues like gas prices and, you know, labor and all that kind of stuff are things that did influence the election. There's also just straight up um, kind of similar to this, the idea of like candidate quality and ideology was nominating a moderate white guy the correct choice for this race. I don't know. (laughs) Would a progressive female candidate have done better? Um, Would she have run a better campaign in Virginia? Um, Murphy ran a more localized campaign, and it was a lot more based on his progressive values. He legalized weed. He increased the minimum wage to $15 an hour, um, and he ran on those progressive values, and he did better. Um, You have to think about, like, oh, are Virginia and New Jersey comparable politically? It kind of goes back and forth on that. They have similar political trends if not being like having the exact same political demographics um but it does it begs the question if if terry mcauliffe had ran a race that was more focused on what democrats had done for virginia and had kept kind of trump out of it as much as possible would would he have done better um and and the house of delegates did a lot of progressive things so if they leaned on those progressive values and leaned on those progressive policies would democrats have done better across the board and again like i said progressives broadly broadly um did better on election night than moderates and does this mean that progressives have broader appeal does it mean that progressives 
you know, separately are doing are doing better in progressive places where moderates are doing better in more moderate places. Um, you know, people on like progressive Twitter will tell you, oh, this means that like we only need to nominate progressives from here on out. I'm not convinced by that necessarily. I think that there's just too many factors at play for us to say, oh, well, we should have nominated a more um, progressive candidate in the Virginia Democratic primary and then we would have won. I, I just don't, I think that kind of Terry McAuliffe was kind of set up for failure a little bit in this race. Um, I also think that maybe a progressive candidate could have done worse. I think that uh, the trends indicate that uh, it kind of didn't matter what Terry McAuliffe said. But I think, look, there's ideology and then there's the literal candidate. There's Terry McAuliffe and then there's the idea of like the moderate white man. So we we know that maybe maybe another a different moderate white man would have done better than terry mcauliffe maybe terry mcauliffe just ran a bad race maybe his like faux pas during the um debate where he said that parents shouldn't be involved in the education like maybe that was the thing um maybe that kind of just screwed with him for the rest of the campaign um but i don't, I don't know i think that there's there's too many factors and there's not enough research to indicate whether or not um, a different candidate or a different political ideology would have actually changed the nature of this race. What I think kind of is the most likely factor in all of this is it's just general election trends taking their turn. Like, this is what happens when um, one party has the trifecta in, in, in national politics. Like, that party is just going to do poorly um, in those, like, off-year elections. That's just the trend. That's what happens. Like, I, again, I haven't looked at, I read these statistics, I didn't write them down, but in Virginia, the, the after a one party gets elected to the presidency, that party almost always loses in the Virginia gubernatorial. Like I said earlier, this was the first Democratic incumbent to win re-election in New Jersey since the 70s. So this is just what happens, I think. I think that, I think democratic operatives are kind of catastrophizing a lot of the results of virginia and new jersey and kind of across the board they're saying oh my god we lost virginia by this like kind of significant margin we're gonna get killed in the midterms and everything is gonna be bad and we're never gonna get control of congress again now we are probably going to get killed in the midterms i'm not saying that but what i am saying is that i don't think that um I think that that's just the tr that's just the election trend, um, and so yeah, we're gonna we're probably gonna lose Congress in 2022. That doesn't mean we're never gonna get Congress back. These are just the natural. This is a life cycle of politics. It goes and it goes and it goes, and the and the trends change over time. Um, and that's you know that that kind of brings me into the next section, which is talking about implications. So I was texting my my dad the night uh, the night of, the, of election day. And he basically said, like, oh, so is this the end of the Biden presidency? No, it's it's not the end of the Biden presidency. I don't think that, um, frankly, I don't think that this has anything to do with. Um, I don't think that the results of Virginia really have anything to do with the, the Democrats' ability to continue getting things done on the Hill. I think that Nancy Pelosi went to bed nice and early on Tuesday. She was not watching the election results. She woke up and said, all right, we lost, whatever, time to do more work. Um, I don't think that she lost any sleep because of the results of Virginia and New Jersey. Because again, like, these are just election life cycles is what happens. Um, so, and now we're, we're a week out from, from Virginia and New Jersey. We're a week out from election day as of tomorrow. And... Virginia is basically entirely faded out of the news cycle. Like, yeah, there's there's Twitter talk about it, and there's, you know, some like the in-depth political news talking about it, and like, you know, insufferable pundits and political science students, including myself at the George Washington University, we're still talking about it, but that's just us. Like, yes, Virginia is a bellwether, but I'm also under the impression, again, that this is just natural election cycles working. Incumbent parties suffer after you win big. It sucks, but it happens. Um, and it doesn't help that Terry McAuliffe didn't run an amazing campaign to kind of counteract the natural deficit that they were already going to one in the already going to run in the same way that that Phil Murphy did run a really good campaign, kind of counteracted a lot of the um, natural detriment that they were already going to experience. 
However, other kind of important implications, I think that this election does expose some new vulnerabilities in the Democratic voting bloc. Suburban women just keep flipping back and forth and they can't decide what they want. Uh, they voted in large numbers for Terry, Terry McAuliffe. Rural voters, as they've always been voting for Republicans, and or at least recently, have been voting for Republicans in large margins. And obviously, we didn't make any inroads there. And also, the Hispanic and Black voting bloc voted for um, Youngkin in, in larger numbers than they have in the past, which are all very important to kind of shoring up um, a Democratic win, especially, especially suburban women, extremely important to shoring up Democratic wins in the future. So... The main implication, in my opinion, is that Democrats need to learn how to message and campaign beyond orange man bad. Because yes, orange man is bad, but also the orange man isn't on the ballot anymore. Um, and so the Democrats need to campaign on the good stuff they are doing, as opposed to campaign on something some guy did years ago. Because we are fully years out from the, or a year out from the um, Trump administration. We need to move on from that because there is stuff that Democrats can be talking about, right? Like why don't, why aren't we taking advantage of the benefit we get from being the incumbent party, right? Why don't people understand what's in the reconciliation package, right? Why can't Democrats maintain a consistent message? I was talking to my friend about this over the weekend. She was like, why aren't the Democrats hammering home the fact that Build Back Better actually brings down the deficit, right? Why can't they form a, for, formulate their messaging around that idea? Um, and it's, so we have a lot of work cut out for us by the midterms, right? What's gonna be effective? What messaging is actually going to work? Is there anything that can be done to actually, again, counteract that that deficit that we're already going to face from like that midterm slump? Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything that we can do, but I think that the messaging that we're currently doing is not it. It's not going to work. And Biden, of course, is actually doing moderately well. Like, he's doing good things. The economy, despite kind of what Republicans would like you to believe, Republicans are, or, excuse me, the economy is doing pretty well. Infrastructure just got passed. Afghan, we pulled out of Afghanistan. We ended a forever war, which, of course, was messy and it didn't go exactly the way that Biden wanted it to go. But he campaigned on the fact that we are going to end this forever war. And then they ended the forever war. So, like, I don't I don't know what else what they want to say about that. So I think that the Democrats really need to have a come to Jesus moment about their method of campaigning, about their messaging and about how localized they're keeping their campaign issues. You know, there can't be one like common um, campaign strategy across all these districts, especially in the House. They need to they need to rethink how they're presenting their role in infrastructure and in Build Back Better and all these things. So we'll see how that goes. We we certainly will see how that goes. Um, and then, of course, kind of lastly, just because everything kind of comes back to this, these results only exacerbate the kind of progressive versus moderate debate that I think might actually kill the party. Uh, we'll see. But I think that um, if, if things kind of go on the way that they're going, the, the progressive versus moderate debate is really not going to not going to be good for the Democrats. So last but not least, the kind of the piece de resistance of this whole election day mess is the Democrats minus six progressives and plus 13 Republicans actually managed to pass the bipartisan infrastructure package on Friday. But of course, A, not without drama and intrigue on the Hill and B, of course, not before Tuesday when Terry McAuliffe could have pointed to this as a success of Democrats um, on the Hill and nationally. So poor Terry McAuliffe woke up Saturday morning and said, you really couldn't have done that four days earlier? Seriously? Seriously? Um, but of course, so the, the, the vote happened on late Friday. It was kind of at that point, it was kind of clear that the bill was going to pass um, throughout the day once they had kind of said that they were going to vote on it on um on that Friday, the Republicans kind of went through and did like a whole bunch of procedural nonsense to try to hold up the bill. Um, but ultimately, the Democrats did plenty of holding themselves um, because moderates and progressives were kind of negotiating behind the scenes. You'll remember, I've talked about in past episodes, the progressives, the progressive caucus in the House was basically holding the infrastructure bill hostage. 
and saying we are not going to be voting on infrastructure. We won't let infrastructure go unless we have kind of a plan set for Build Back Better and we vote on Build Back Better. Um, and ultimately, what I think was going on behind the scenes was the moderates and Democratic leadership basically forcing the progressives to blink on this. Uh, they were negotiating behind the scenes um, quite a lot throughout the day. Um, ultimately, the vote got offered. They went into recess. During that 40-minute recess, um, the progressives and the moderates announced a deal, and they basically said, we're going to vote on infrastructure tonight. The um, progressives promised to vote on infrastructure, and they agreed that they were going to vote on Build Back Better in the, the in its current form, plus or minus some like small procedural changes, um, uh, during the week of November 15th, when they received a score from the Congressional Budget Office. So once they actually know how much the bill is going to cost them, they are going to vote on on that bill. So they had commitments from both sides um, to, to kind of pass those both of those bills. And so they said, all right, we're going to go into the infrastructure vote right now. Like, let's go. We got the commitment. We're just going to rear ahead. Um, and so ultimately, like I said, 13 Republicans um did end up voting with the Democrats, which kind of shored up their numbers altogether, and then six progressive vote, voted against. So uh, it can be argued, incorrectly, but it can be argued that, oh, Republicans, Republicans pushed infrastructure over the top. Republicans uh, can be thanked for um, voting on this bill. No, like those six progressive votes, if they needed to have voted with um, the six progressive voters, six progressive House members that voted against infrastructure, all squad members and squad adjacent members. So they're all the most like symbolic progressive votes, right? So um, if Pelosi needed those votes, they would have voted with the Democrats. But Pelosi knew, all right, we've got this block of Republicans. So you guys, you, you, you symbolic progressives that need to vote against um, infrastructure to kind of save face and make that symbolic statement about how this vote is going. You guys can feel free, vote however you want, because we had enough votes to actually make sure that the bill passed. Um, and those 13 Republicans, also pretty interesting, I think like six of them were from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or New York, where infrastructure is very important and like a very significant campaign promise. So anyway, I just think it's interesting that, that the, this bipartisan infrastructure bill actually remained bipartisan. Um into its final form. It's going to get signed by the president. I believe it already has. I know Secretary Mayor Pete was uh, did the, the White House briefing today, and they are just raring to go on infrastructure, which, you know, it's finally infrastructure week again. When isn't it infrastructure week? It's a good question. Um, is, it, has, is it infrastructure week or has it been infrastructure year? Oh, it's been a long time that we've been talking about this bill, but it's finally... Out of sight, out of mind, except for all the new roads and bridges and tunnels we're going to get. Yay! So anyway, is Build Back Better going to pass down the line November 15th um, when we finally get the, the CBO score? I think so. I truly think that um, they're, they're all going to vote on it because the Progressive Caucus is really big. It's it's 95 members of the House. Um and I don't know if the, they're going to be able to keep the entire caucus together because they're going to have to whip really, really hard because there are some, like, moderate progressives. Um, I think Jamie Raskin being one of them, like, I don't think he's necessarily going to vote against Build Back Better. Um, but I really think that there will be there will be bad, bad things happening on the Hill if Build Back Better does not pass when that CBO score comes out. So we'll see how it goes. And like I said, Terry McAuliffe could have used this good news a week ago when he was finishing up his his run for governor but you win some you lose some t-mac you win some you lose some um so we'll see we'll see how that all goes um i the, i i love watching c-span on friday nights it's like my favorite activity because <laughs> i'm extremely fun and interesting all the time um so watching that vote was pretty was pretty cool that long recess was pretty fun because, you know, it's like, you know, on C-SPAN, it's like, oh, yeah, the house is in recess. Then you go on Twitter and you're refreshing it over and over again. And all the Hill journalists are like spotted Pramila Jayapal and AOC, like tucked into a corner talking to each other. And Nancy Pelosi is like going around to the entire California delegation, like whipping on the floor. Um, and look, 
Politics is annoying and weird and complicated, but there is something to be said for the drama and intrigue of the House of Representatives. And also, look, you can say what you want about Nancy Pelosi. You can disagree with her politically. You can dislike you can, you can dislike her politics. You can dislike her as a person. She is a dang good politician, and she knows what she's doing, and I am kind of obsessed with that, uh, just from a purely, like, theoretical, like, political standpoint. She is kind of amazing. So, and then with that, of course, just to, to finish off this rambly caffeined up radio show this week we get to talk about our insane political story of the week and of course because it was election week our insane political story we had so many choices for our insane political story but here's the story i chose um the president of the new jersey senate which the the democrats did very well in the um in the state senate and the state house they did really well like they're totally fine but the president of the new jersey senate Uh, Sweeney got voted out on Tuesday for a a Republican truck driver that spent $153 on his campaign. Total, $153 on his campaign. That being said, I do not know how much Sweeney spent on his campaign because I don't know if he spent money on campaigning in the past 20 years. Like, he is, not only is he incumbent, like, he is, like, an entrenched, like, entrenched entrenched democratic like icon of the new jersey state senate and he's been around for ages and he just completely got voted out and like not a small margin um so edward durr he's in he is the newest member of the new jersey state senate and you know i'm i'm upset that that the democrat got voted out regardless of the fact that we kept our majority but you know anything can happen in good old new freaking jersey Anything can happen, um, and Edward Durr is just symbolic of that. Um, Sweeney isn't conceding, though, which is upsetting, but, you know, what do you kind of expect? Um, I don't even think, again, like, we go back to polling again and again and again. Was polling even done on this race? I don't think so. Was anybody, like, looking at this race being like, oh, dang, Sweeney's going to lose? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if anybody was paying any attention to it, but this just also goes to show like there's no more support for Democrats in rural or suburban areas and messaging desperately needs to be changed. You know, New Jersey politics, I think New Jersey local politics is going to be pretty interesting following this race because now there's this huge power vacuum in New Jersey politics. Um, Because again, he's this icon of like centrism in the New Jersey State Senate. And I think maybe this opens the door for some progressives to kind of get their foot in the door in terms of the New Jersey State Senate. So, you know what, Edward Durr and your $153, I am proud of you. I know you're not going to hear this, but I I am proud of you for taking advantage of the chaos of New Jersey local politics. But with that, shockingly, I managed to fit everything I wanted to talk about into this episode. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening. It's been a pleasure as always. Um, If you guys want to follow the show on social media, uh, on Instagram, it is Sheep Thrills Radio. And on Twitter, it is Sheep Thrills GW. As always, DM me, email me. If you have my phone number, why would you have my phone number? Text me, call me. Let me know what you think about the show. Let me know what your thoughts are. Um, as always, the show will be posted on Spotify tomorrow. Sources on my social media as well, if you guys are interested in that. But with that, thank you guys so much for listening. And I will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>